The Future Works, a podcast for workforce professionals, hosted by me, Melinda Mack. Hi, everyone. It's Melinda Mack, and I am so excited to bring to you today's episode of the Future Works podcast. I think you probably have experienced what we're going to talk about today. And this is a challenge that the workforce industry faces, but I'm sure it's something that comes up in many other industries as well. It's the transfer of knowledge from leaders to the next generation. I know you know who I'm talking about. They're the people who have worked in many parts of the system or in many different parts of an agency or of company. They've tried to do super hard things and they've often succeeded, but they also have failed. And when they failed, they learn from it and try again. And eventually they figure things out and create change. We don't realize often how valuable these lessons are until it's far too late. And often leaders don't write down what they've learned along their journey. So for this episode of The Future Works, I'm really lucky that I got to sit down with Von Tan Quinlevin from Futuro Health. Von is absolutely a catalyst, and prior to being the CEO of Futuro, she was the Executive Vice Chancellor of Workforce and Digital Futures at the California Community Colleges. I mean, the accolades about her work abound, including being named a White House Champion for Change under the Obama administration. Aside from being a rock star, I wanted to sit down to talk to Von about her latest venture, a must-read book called Workforce Rx, Agile and Inclusive Strategies for Employers, Educators, and Workers in Unsettled Times. The book is structured like a playbook of challenges and it includes the proven workforce development strategies to tackle these challenges. Considering that we're in year two of this pandemic and there's been a huge shift in the labor market, I thought it would be a great time for us to get some of this knowledge passed down to us. I honestly left feeling inspired by Van's ability to listen and reflect as a leader, but also for her ability to leave breadcrumbs, as she calls it, to help lead people and institutions towards change. So with that, I'm so pleased to welcome Vantan Quinlevin. Well, I'm so delighted to be joined today by my friend, my colleague, my fellow National Skills Coalition board member, uh, Vaughn. Um, how are you? So good to see you. Melinda, I'm delighted to connect with you and uh, to start off the new year. And if folks don't know um, who Vaughn is, she is the CEO of Futuro Health um, and the author of Workforce Rx, which I just found to be absolutely fascinating and perfectly timed. It's like you knew that we were going to be hitting a pandemic and we would need this playbook. So thank you so much for writing this book. Um, I want to spend some time not only talking about the book, but also talking about the current state of affairs in terms of the labor market, but also what we should be thinking about as workforce practitioners. And so I guess we should probably start with the Workforce Rx. Why did you write it? What were you hoping to accomplish um, by putting this book into the universe? Well, Melinda, you know, my career has spanned the private sector, the public sector, and now the nonprofit sector, tackling the issues in workforce development in novel ways. And I just felt that this moment in time, we just have to get out all the best practices and the playbooks, proven strategies and playbook, so that others can also deploy these good practices. If you had uh, taken a look at a recent Washington Post article, the headline was 10 million open jobs and 8.4 million workers looking for jobs. Those are very, very big numbers. And they moved up and down uh, since the time that that article got published. 
But we're talking about big structural issues where employers can't find workers and workers can't find work. So we need all organizations, all employers, all community organizations, public policymakers, all of us who are in the, the workforce development world to be revving on all engines. And so what we wanted to do here was get out these agile and inclusive strategies for employers, educators, and workers as we navigate through very unsettled times right now. I loved in some ways it was um, the way that you've laid it out is very much like this is the challenge. And here's in many ways, like the prescription for how you you address the issue. Um, and it is really much embedded in, in national best practice, which I think from my perspective as someone who works in public policy, it's not just a book where you're identifying all of the issues. You're super clear that these are solvable problems if we adjust um, sort of our thinking, but also adjust some of the structures and systems that we're engaged in. Uh, which leads me to the question about scale. So you're from California. You're, you worked in a massive community college system um, in California. Um, in New York, we have the same issues in terms of scale and what really counts as scale or impacts scale, right? You can't really do something for 3,000 people in the state of New York and have it be something that's necessarily systems changing. Um, so when you think about um, scale and think about moving from the concept of big, shiny ideas to systems change, how do you really think about this? I'm really interested in your thinking and your approach because you've done this and you've implemented massive systems change for the California Community College system. Well, Melinda, there's, there's a number of strategies that we tested and I, I would have to say, I was um, fortunate in my career to be able to take on a level of risk that maybe others uh, couldn't, couldn't at a practical level. And so, um, you know, all of these strategies require quite a bit of change management. And sometimes that ends up with a lot of arrows to the, to the individuals who are attempting the change. Because especially in the public policy realm, every line item, every budget item has a lot of stakeholders. It reminds me of that, that uh, I think it was a Verizon commercial where uh, behind that, that person is always a, a set of stakeholders, right? So it can be very difficult for someone who's um, leading an agency or trying to administer a program to be able to attempt change. So just a few lessons learned, and these are discussed in the book. Um, one of the things we've observed, and the community colleges where I came from, the California Community College is the largest higher education system in the nation, now with 116 community colleges, all uh, with locally elected trustees, right? So very complicated system. Um, one of the things that I saw was this issue of pilot fatigue, right? Pilot fatigue. You would be able to roll out a program, as you say, kind of the shiny new program, and maybe one college, two college, maybe maximum five college would partake in that program. But then by that cycle, they would, you know, they would tire out and it just doesn't go much bigger. So Melinda, what we found was that there's this phenomenon of pilot fatigue, where you may have one college, two college, maybe five college attempt to do a certain practice. And once that cycle, uh, you know, runs through, they're tired out, or the, the window has then closed for more reform, right? Uh, so one of the things that, that I attempted to do was actually to design in the J curve of adoption. So instead of just having the ambition of you know, one, two, three, or four, or five, what I wanted to do was borrow from 
the tech sector how to gain adoption on a concept. So intentionally, we actually launched a new program seeking out 10 colleges that wanted to work together in order, for example, to develop a, a, a soft skills curriculum that was acceptable to, to the, our faculty. And when you ask for 10 colleges to work together, you're already designing for scale because they, can, they, they need to then think about the infrastructure in which they communicate, the train, the trainer, in addition to the curricular approaches. It's very different than if you're designing for one college, right? And so repeatedly, we did 10. And then the next challenge, if they could survive delivering on 10, was to take them to 20. Now the next grant would challenge them to get to 20. Then the next grant actually uh, challenged them to get to 60. And so we've, uh, we've actually taken several programs from uh, a low level number to roughly somewhere between 80 colleges adopting that practice to over to a hundred percent adoption. And so that's riding um, the J curve of, of scale. I'm, I'm trying to find words to describe how impressed I am with that because it is remarkably difficult. I think, especially um, for folks who are not familiar with working within public systems or within public university systems around, as you've described sort of the layers of bureaucracy, but also the layers of influence and decision makers that you have to be able to change hearts and minds um, in order to be able to get something to stick. Um, but also the fact that I think, you know, we watch and I, again, I don't know if it's accurate or if it's just us being wishful thinking in, in New York that California has also put the money behind a lot of these strategies too. So it wasn't this almost like, you know, the quick infusion of cash and then we pull it back as, as uh, the pilot phase ends, it looks like that the, the money is there and it's sticking around to be able to continue to push for this as well. Well, it's, it's a bit circular because um, money alone is insufficient. I've had uh, sister uh, agencies that have received, for example, like three quarters of a billion dollars for a program. And because they didn't put in place a, a set of things by the end of that program, uh, I, I, I would just say just flush right through. You know, it didn't have the, the longstanding impact. So, and I actually got started in the California Community College in, the, in one of the downturns, the last downturn, when people were leaving Sacramento and I was doing the crazy thing of going to Sacramento. Um, and we had about $100 million in discretionary uh, funds for career education. And it was a dilemma. And I asked the question, well, if we're so constrained in resources, like, how can I get colleges to work together? Uh, because, you know, in, they may be serving the same students. Uh, we certainly don't have money for every single college to do every single program. And so it was really just a simple question of how to, sh how to stretch the dollars to get more uh, workforce outcomes. And interestingly enough, um, colleges said to me that we, the state, paid them to compete because we had we ran these big RFPs where you know the best proposal won, and the result was that the you know you had big co uh, big colleges that had great grant writers always winning, and uh, there was sort of disparate impacts where the small colleges uh, continue to be under resourced. So I really thought hard about that feedback. And we began to think about how else could you flow the money? Because the behaviors of the college, they follow the, the pattern of the money. 
And so once we started um, rethinking that, we said, okay, we're going to reuse our existing funds, which is the Perkins funds, the discretionary funds, which all of you have, right? But instead of causing competition amongst the college, let's redesign competition. Instead, we're going to have regions compete against regions. And now you need to know, like in California, like LA region is bigger than some states alone. So this is, we're not talking about um, small geographies here. Uh, so we're gonna have regions compete against region, but within a region, we want all the education entities to coll collaborate, right? So that they breathe their resources rather than start from scratch. Now, the conundrum, as you can imagine, Melinda, getting uh, parties that have competed in the past to play together, it really just takes a, a, a set of breadcrumbs that you have to lay. Uh, and it requires also the alignment of monies, metrics, and data. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we took a little bit of our discretionary Perkins dollars and said, we're going to guarantee that there will be a winner for every region of California. However, 60% of the colleges in that region must adopt the same practice, must, must choose to play, and one winner will be awarded. So basically we gave, you know, we gave one, we guaranteed an award. So it was less the emphasis on writing some masterful grant. It was more about getting, uh, enlisting the parties to come together. Well, the colleges were so, mad. They were so mad that we were asking them to play. They talk yeah. about getting those arrows in the quiver, right? They, you were, they were coming for you, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, how, you know, how dare we, we decide to change the flow of the money. But at the end of the day, there was one applicant, one lead applicant from every single region. Then the second pot of money, again, this is existing money. We just restructured it within the, our discretion. And this is also a lesson. If you want the state to invest more, if you want the public to support you, the legislature, the governor, you must do unto yourself some of these changes first where you have administrative control. Because if you're not willing to do it, why should they invest? So what happened was we put out a second grant. And once again, we reinforced this concept of regional. We said, we will guarantee a winner in every single region but now not only 60%, but 100% of your colleges must agree. And guess what? Lots of arrows were thrown, but at the end of the day, 100% of the colleges signed on for every single the region. And then a third time, we did it again. 100% of your colleges must play within the region. And so by setting these breadcrumbs, what ended up was the colleges needed to talk to each other, built relationship. And as you know, collaboration and partnership cannot flourish unless you have some baseline trust. And once the colleges were able to coordinate and organize, it became easier for the employer community to come forth because now we're parlaying, you know, the capacity of 20, you know, 26 community colleges in the Bay Area. That's extraordinary, right? 16 community colleges in the Central Valley area. So that kind of a capacity really excited the employers and they began to send higher level people to these meetings um, in order to, to address their workforce needs. You know, it's in our state, our new governor has recently put forward a $350 million strategy um, around 
this idea of workforce and economic development coming together in a more regional focus. Um, I don't think they have thought as far down the road as you have. So I'm so glad I've had a chance to talk to you because I'm gonna follow back up with them to share some of these insights um, because I do really think this idea of doing best with the money you have first is so crucial in terms of a lesson. Um, but then secondly, um, really thinking about how you use the data, which leads me to the next question, um, because I think one of the things that is continuing to be frustrating for me, and I'm very much on the free the data sort of team here, I, we should make t-shirts, Vaughn, <laughs> we could wear them, set the data free. Um, how did you sort of manage this continuous improvement work? And I'm assuming you probably used better and more unified data to help inspire this concept of continuous improvement amongst, amongst this huge number of resources across the state. Um, how are you thinking about data in this context, but also how are you thinking about it in the future of where we need to get to as workforce systems in order to be able to work together more effectively? Well, Melinda, the, the story that I told in the book was that um, early in my tenure as uh, vice chancellor, a, a career technical education dean stood up at one of the conferences and he, and he said, well, uh, you know, we need to free the data. And I had to ask what he meant by that. And basically it was all the colleges have to upload data on a regular basis up to the state, but they got nothing back of value in return. And so it occurred to me that what, what they were asking for are actually data tools that give them insights into what is happening rather than data for the purpose of compliance, right, which we do a lot of, uh, which is backward looking, how can the data actually help inform the field in the, in the work that they do with students? Um, so again, you, you know, you have to set the, set the bread, uh, breadcrumb uh, for this. And um, we develop a version one, it's called the launch board, uh, launch and it, it got user testing. They didn't, people didn't like it. So it wasn't ready to go. But version two, I began to get signals back from those who were trying it out that they that it was very helpful in answering the practical questions that people on the ground needed. And so my work at the state was then how do you begin to foster adoption of data tools, which, as you know, it's not an easy thing. I mean, it rarely gets adoption. And we did manage to eventually get 100% adoption of this, this data tool. Um, so here, here's an example of what the, the tool can do, because in, in the, the system, you know, many faculty and administrators needed to see the data and come to the conclusion on their own that there was work to be done. So there was a gathering of, of faculty in San Diego that looked at the data from the launch board, and they said, look at the enrollment. We got great enrollment, Pat and patted themselves on the back. Then they look at the completion data and they said, great completion. Let's pat ourselves on the back once again. Then they looked at the workforce outcomes and they realized no one, none of their students were getting employed. And they said, all right, something is wrong. We need to have a conversation. And that is the right conversation. The data needed to create that level of insight. Um, and to do so, you know, at the very local level where they're making decisions. And so, you know, th that group revisited their whole strategy with students. Now, from a, a state perspective, you're going to need to be able to roll up the data in many ways, right? It's by program, by certificate, but also rolled up to the institutional level, 
But now if you're thinking regional, you need to be able to roll it up to the regional level and roll up at the state level and then be able to cut it, uh, for example, by different industries that you care about, uh, be able to view at any of these level by the demographics um, that you care about. So uh, uh, again, it was um, a, a long work in progress, but it was extraordinarily powerful because once again, it's not just money. You have to align the monies, the metrics, and the data in order to really put wind in the sail of our colleges. Again, I love everything you're saying is 100% the same things that I think about all day. And I think one of the pieces that I, as you're describing this, I keep thinking, I feel like our, our folks would be so thrilled to get a data tool, something like this that would help them understand. But also I think there's this element that you described of like myth busting, right? I think everyone has their own sort of myth or idea of what's happening, but often folks don't know what are the right questions they should be asking. And so many times folks don't say, oh, I wonder what happened after someone left our program. I wonder five down, five years down the road, I wonder where they are. You know, like it's the same thing. We had an issue probably about 10, maybe 15 years ago now um, when I was working in the city of New York around community college completion, many of our college access providers weren't thinking past the access point. They were thinking just about access, not about completion. And then when you move the metric to completion, suddenly obviously behavior changes, uh, which I'm really interested to hear what you think some of those metrics look like um, or what kind of metrics you implemented as part of this sort of free the data movement that you created in in California. Well, you know, one of the uh, the things that we had to do was uh, the system of colleges said that you know, as a as a system, we were not measuring or acknowledging the right metrics. So one of the action items that resulted on our strong workforce task force was that we needed to update our metrics to reflect not only the completion and what we regard as, you know, traditional uh, work, work uh, to completion of a program, uh, but you have to look at like, did it break living regional living wage? Was there a significant wage gain? Um, uh, so th- these are uh, some of the additional uh, metrics that were added. And once they were added, uh, they not only harmonized the ability for the public workforce system to work with the, co- the community colleges, but then the colleges acknowledged that the right things are being measured. And I, I want to also mention that we found the field our faculty, for example, was spending an inordinate amount of time hunting and pecking for data, right? Like what happened to my students? So one of the things we did was we really invested in getting quality data into the tool and to them so that they would spend less time hunting and pecking for data, but rather more time looking at the implications of the data. And the first thing that will happen to you, Melinda, is that the colleges will say, oh, this can't be true. <laughs> this can't be true. Your data is wrong. Well, <laughs> it turns out the colleges gave us this data. And when they didn't like what came back to them in the tool, one of the objections uh, is uh, you can overcome that objection by actually giving them some resources to clean up their data because now the data actually mattered. Somebody was going to use the data. And so they went back to clean it up. Um, So again, this concept of setting the breadcrumb uh, towards uh, adoption of this tool, uh, what we did was we said, we would like to give 
guarantee you a grant, but the grant is was gated by you setting a team to go learn about this tool, including one executive champion has to be in that team, right? Um, so once they attended that training, it unlocked the grant. And the grant could be used in, in a number of ways. One is it could provide faculty professional development on how to use the tool. Second, it could be used to clean up the data, you know, getting some capacity to clean up the data. Third, it could be used to integrate um, that tool with their accreditation uh, uh, software, right, in order to streamline that. And so these were the objections that we heard along the way. And we gave them the grant in order to clear, to get beyond that, that, that hurdle. And that cleared the way for more, for greater adoption. And so when we uh, were able to successfully gain, uh, create a strong workforce program, which had 200 million a year in career education, it was all the planning, all the reporting uh, was all done, uh, anchored in that tool in terms of measuring accountability and outcomes um, for that program. And so we put money against that, you know, using the tool at a later point. Well, and I think it's just, again, it's a fabulous foresight into thinking about how you set up these programs to be successful. Um, But also, again, from the advocacy standpoint, like if you don't have good data, it's really hard to advocate to continue to be, to invest, right? Because there is again a lot of you know we're we're still in this land of many different spreadsheets that are you know brought together at the end to sort of some something. Um, when in reality we want to be in a place where we can sort of compare and contrast year over year, program over program, you know, campus over campus, region over by region. Um, and I think you know again thinking about these data tools, I think are, are, are from my perspective, it's like the next wave of the systems work that we have to do here in our state. My favorite function on this on this tool was actually the lookup tool. So like in our in our state, we have uh, like sixty eight nursing programs, right? And so if you're in a if you're looking at your outcomes for students and not very happy with it, you actually can compare it to the best in class. And you can look all around the state to see who has better outcomes and then pick up the phone or email them uh, to find out why they have better outcomes than you. So again, it facilitated uh, uh, peer learning, which is a sort of a cultural thing that our our faculty prefer. That's great. And can I ask, is that a public facing tool? Like is a, can a learner look in there as well and see sort of the same data that the schools see? Uh, the learner could because it's just publicly available. However, we we created a different tool called the Salary Surfer, and this was uh, a mapping for every single cred- credential, every single degree, at every single college. Students can search what they wanted to search was for um, you know what was the, the earning power of these degrees, and so they would see what you know two years before, two years after, and five years after. What did you know the students? earn um, who completed these these uh, credentials or degrees. And so they they enjoyed that more. Um, Students in general, they they wanted to search uh, based on earning power, on commute radius. And then the third one um, was, you know, my skills and aptitude, what's a good match for my career. That's great. So the last question I'm sort of gonna go down the rabbit hole with you on <laughs> is really around the problems that were in the labor market long before COVID hit. 
Um, and the fact that th those problems not only persist, but are wholly exacerbated by COVID-19. We're talking about race equity inclusion. We're talking about job quality. We're talking about employer engagement. Um, you know, the, the more I see these like great resignation articles coming out, I keep thinking no one was listening to any of the, the workforce folks when we were talking about all these issues with the labor market before. So I wanted to get sort of your thoughts around what we need to be doing as a system uh, around making sure that this recovery is an equitable recovery, um, but also what we need to be doing with employers to make sure we have more good jobs, that we're not continuing to perpetuate uh, sort of low wage work across the states and across our country. You well, know, just a small thing. Can you solve all of that for us, Vaughn? So Melinda, I actually, gain quite a bit of insight into equity and inclusion and the value of tackling this issue as an ecosystem rather than on my own back when I was an employer. And so let me share with you what I call my fish story. So we had built, um, you know, we were, we were wanted a better quality uh, and, and diverse and reliable uh, workforce pipeline for our utility workers, which are the front lines of um, the energy sector. And the company had had such a bad um, experience where they would go out into the community, for example, through a community-based organization, and maybe one out of 30 individuals would pass the pre-employment uh, test. So it, it was kind of a dismal experience. That was where I learned that a three-legged stool to workforce development works best, where we don't try to do everything. We actually, each of us focus on what we do best. So employers should focus on articulating what they need and then eventually hire. The public workforce system or community-based organization would do a much better job at outreach and then case management of uh, candidates through this process. And then education should focus on closing the gap between where the candidates are and what the, the employers need. So again, um, and so let so what happened was we developed a, the PG&E Power Pathway Program. We had all these candidates do uh, some uh, special program, and then they would go through our normal pre-employment uh, process. And there was one individual, Aleki, whom the supervisors had interacted with and just loved. So we we're all waiting for him to come out on the back end of the process. Well, somehow he disappeared from the list. And because we were doing this in a workforce development program, we were looking for him. So at, upon asking some questions, what we found out was that Alecki, when he was 15, had gone fishing and he caught a fish that was too small. And then he got a ticket, which he, as a 15-year-old, did not pay, which then became, uh, which then went to court, which he didn't show up, which then became a felony on his record. And Alecki had no idea that he had a felony, which would have precluded him from a vast portion of energy sector jobs because they all conduct background checks. And as you know, as an employer, all you're going to do is send Alecki and, you know, the Aleckis of the world, uh, you know, thank you for applying, but you're not going to spend time um, explaining why he didn't make it. Well, the beauty in the this, the three-legged stool of workforce development was that our public workforce board was able to work with Alecki to get his record expunged. And then as a employer, we were able to hire him. Imagine that. 
we could have trained them all day long. The educator could have trained them all day long, but it wouldn't have addressed this barrier for the employer. And so this is why there's such power in working together to tackle the, the big structural issues right now and ensure that we can reach out to a broader set of talents um, that would have otherwise uh, dropped through the cracks. Um, thank you so much. Where can folks get your book? Melinda, you could just go onto Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. The title again is Workforce Rx, Agile and Inclusive Strategies for Employers, Educators, and Workers in Unsettled Time. And Melinda, I would love to have uh, an Amazon review. It only takes 20 seconds. Any of your listeners, if they read the book, I would love to hear back from them to the Amazon review. Well, Vaughn, thank you so much. I feel like I learned a ton in only a half an hour. And so I'm so appreciative that you took the time to come and speak with us today, but also for sharing, again, all this wisdom. I think often one of the challenges we have with leaders like you who are not only inspiring, but so seasoned in some of all these different ways that you've approached problems, we often don't have time to have folks share. And so we end up making the same mistakes. And so the fact that you've put this all in one place that we could take a look from from all of your different experiences, um, but also the knowledge that you gained from this and you know sharing it with us is just such a gift. So I, again, I so appreciate this. Um, and again, I'm hopeful that we can, in New York, take some of these learnings as we go into this next generation of workforce development with our new governor. Thank you, Melinda, for inviting me and helping me get the word out. And I also want to pre in advance thank your listeners for helping me get the word out. Okay, no problem. Thanks, Don. Thank you for joining the Future Works podcast. You can download previous episodes at www.niatep.org.